Governments typically like to go with big companies. They don't have much trust in little startups. Many procurement documents require five-year experience and three clients for multi-million projects. How can a bright startup go anywhere with that? So we're trying to lower the barriers for entry to work for government. And governments now in almost every country I worked on want to go with electronic procurement to digitize and to modernize the way the process is. Welcome back to another episode of the Global Startup Movement. I'm your host, Andrew Berkowitz. And today we are joined by a very special guest. We've been uh, both traveling a lot. It's been hard to actually find a time for us to, to actually sit down and connect, but I'm, I'm very grateful to have her in studio with me today. Uh, Samia Melhem is the lead digital development policy specialist at the World Bank. Um, and so she's right up the road, but uh, so glad to have you here. Thank you, Andrew. So happy to be here. Awesome. Well, let's, um, let's just start this off. Tell, tell us you know, a little bit about yourself and, and your experience and, and really what you do at the World Bank. Sure. First, let me thank you for hosting me here. I love the name Peace Tech Lab, two concepts I cherish. What I do at the World Bank is uh, provide project management and technical advice to governments who are trying to leverage technology for development. And going up one more level, the World Bank's mission is to alleviate poverty and to create more shared prosperity. So increase the world's global middle class, if you will, through jobs, growth, and new prospects. And technology fits perfectly right there. It's a totally new sector, no tradition, no big legacy. And we've seen for the last 20 years a very big uptake and appetite from both government and private sector to collaborate with the World Bank on leveraging technology for three things. The first one is improve the communications networks, without which you cannot have any digital economy. The second one is to use digital to improve government in general, the public administration, and go more digital. And the third aspect, which is the most of interest to this podcast, is really help create ecosystems around the world where you'll have tech entrepreneurs starting their own business and creating a lot of growth, both at the national, regional, and global level. Got it. Yeah, I think, you know, the World Bank is a, a very prominent stakeholder in the development of a, of a lot of different countries around the world. And I think most people just have this big kind of cloud or question mark around like, you know, what, what the World Bank actually does, what the operations are. Of course. <laughs> yeah. You're so right. I mean, we're a big institution and the way we deal with different sectors is sometimes not very clear. The World Bank is divided into 14 global practices, mm. and each one of these considerate vertical that handles a specific topic, let it be poverty, gender, education, health, transport. The group I'm in right now is focused on digital development, and it's at the same time vertical sector because of what we mentioned around telecom, broadband, the pipes to carry data and content, but it's also very cross-cutting because you have digital in everything. Mm. So out of the 14 global practices at the World Bank, we find a lot of interest in tech, not only in our group, but also in health, in agriculture. We're seeing a lot of agri-tech efforts to promote entrepreneurs in agri-tech, education, governance, etc. Mm. And what the World Bank does is two types of support to developing countries. The first one is loans. So uh, loans with 
very low interest rate over the long term towards economic project development objectives. And the second one is provide grants, what you call free technical assistance, capacity building, feasibility study to help specific actions at the request of government. Mm. Yeah. So a lot of people tuning in might be thinking to themselves, well, this is a, this is a startup podcast. Why are we talking about the World Bank? And really the reason is, and it comes up a lot on the show, there are so many sectors across the startup economy that you can't have in a country unless there's the infrastructure in place. E-commerce is the big one. You can't have e-commerce without roads. Maybe we can have a drone-based system, but that's still years away, and we still need roads to transport some of the heavier goods, right? So it's it's very important to kind of understand the infrastructure piece of the startup economy, especially when you look at places like like Africa, uh, Southeast Asia, certain places in Central and Latin America. Um, so these are areas that we kind of take for granted here in the West. Um, maybe some of the boring sectors, but very very important. Absolutely. Now, one thing I make, want to make sure we cover: I haven't heard this term outside of like a World Bank context. And that term is basically digital dividends and what that kind of means in a digital development context. And so can you give us a little bit of insight of, of what a digital dividend is and uh, you know, why, why people in these countries should, should take notice of, of that concept? Absolutely. This is, this is such a relevant question. And I, I wanted to also add to your point on infrastructure that absolutely without telecom, without power, it's very difficult to talk about startups in the tech industry. Yeah. And most people don't understand in Nigeria specifically, when a startup is raising capital from BC, baked into their financial model is gas to run their generators in order to power the office. Right. And so like that's, <laughs> so You're yeah. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And we don't see that. It's not part of um, how we live in the U.S. We take it for granted. Mm. Even in, uh, in schools, it's exactly the same thing. Part of the recurrent costs always include the power and uh, the connection to the internet, which you have to pay. So let's go back to uh, digital dividends. Until 2016, technology was seen uh, more as a luxury sector by many of the big multilateral and donors. And research has, had been piling up, and we did a seminal research in what we call the World Development Report. It's our biggest annual publication, and we partner in it with many, many other partners, such as the International Telecom Union, ITU, a big player in that field, UNESCO, the UNDP, etc., and a lot of private sector. So we came up with our reports called Digital Dividends. And what the report examined is what is the impact of the internet so far on the global economy? Who are the winners? What are the laggers? Who are the laggers? And what do they need to do to not be too late to adopt the digital train, if you will? Analyzing the enormous economic benefits that have been reaped by countries that have early on managed to build the internet infrastructure that is fiber optic or satellite, international connectivity, high-speed broadband, and of course, having equipped their people for the public sector or, or their students and teachers with laptops or handheld so they could access and get access to information and, and start to go digital and participate in the global economy. And I think until 2016, we were not very uh, clear 
on the fact that now everything is global. You could be sitting in uh, Uganda or Kenya and participating in the online marketplace, getting jobs online and getting paid online through digital payments for a project sitting in Cambodia or in Myanmar without having to leave Uganda or Kenya. And we're seeing more and more of such models of the new jobs. We're seeing more and more models of entrepreneurs, part of the startup ecosystem you are nurturing, creating their own companies out of their garage, wherever that is, and using the internet to brand and sell services and go global. We have the anecdotes of the giants like Alibaba, but it's not an anecdote if we follow it closely. And companies like that have benefited from great access to infrastructure, access to talent, being enabled by public sector, or at least nobody from the public sector has tried to stop them, and also a huge market. And, and we typically see that for small countries, the small size of the country is not a hurdle if you can go regional. You're seeing a lot of that in Africa, and even if you can go global. So digital dividends is really the story of looking at people and skills, looking at public institutions, looking at regulations and legal frameworks, and how to modernize all these at a country level for a specific country to be digitally savvy and adopting uh, the digital culture and mindset. And that particular report has created a series of first cultural changes within the World Bank and many of our partners and donors, because we've been talking for the last four years about a new generation of project called digital economy. And our clients, so developing countries' government, have been very excited about that. Starting in Africa, where we've had at the highest level, uh, heads of state through the African Union endorse the digital economy, what we called at that time moonshot. Now it has another name. And many countries, you mentioned many of these with me, Andrew, at the very beginning, Kenya, Rwanda, Ethiopia, Cote d'Ivoire, Senegal, South Africa, they're currently partnering with the World Bank or and other partners to create the foundations of digital economy. And for those that have already the foundations, to strengthen the foundations and scale them up. Mm. And so in, in these foundations, we look at five Big factors, you already mentioned the first of them, digital infrastructure, access to internet everywhere, not only in the capital, secure internet, so you're not constantly hacked, decent speeds, but also affordable. And we've worked with a lot of think tanks here. Alliance for Affordable Internet is one of them. They're based in Boston, and they've been terrific partners to us and to ITU in helping examine how much exactly is affordable and really giving us guidance on the maximum one should pay based on their annual GDP for secure and quality access to internet. I think the number is 2%. And if you really go with that 2%, you see a lot of our client countries are today, people there are paying a lot more, 20%, sometimes 25% for low quality connection, which is not conducive for digital entrepreneurs to do any type of uh, decent project and scale it up across their country. Mm -hmm. So digital infrastructure is the first pillar. The second pillar is digital platforms. And here we look at public platform like government, digital government, how digitized our governments, how much of the services are online. You don't have to go line up for hours and 
get your paper stamped 10 times and pay bribes, which is very frequent, much more common than we think. But also the public platforms. You mentioned earlier on Airbnb, we mentioned Amazon and many, many other digital platforms that link what used to be 20 years ago, a landlocked, isolated country like Rwanda, for example, to the global supply chain and has permitted these isolated countries and suppliers in these countries to be able to export anything from coffee to minerals to software applications all over the world. Yeah. And then the other three will go very quickly because I'll go back to them are digital payments. Of course, you don't want to be part of the cash economy and carry cash. So being able to get your money transferred in a digital way started with mobile money and M-Pesa is the most famous example uh, out of Kenya, but there's many others. The fourth one, sorry, is digital skills, which is very, very important to teach the youth early on how to use the digital tools because that inspires them later on to become entrepreneurs. Last and most important to you, Andrew, is the fifth pillar, which is digital entrepreneurs. How can a large multilateral organization like the World Bank and many of its partners contribute without crowding a private sector to help create an ecosystem at a country or regional level that will favor the growth and the nurturing of digital entrepreneurs? Yeah. And so there, there's a lot to unpack there. I think I really want to dive deeper into Rwanda because I think you were there since the early days and really have seen the amazing development there. But I do want to put myself on record right now of making a prediction of what the next leapfrogging narrative in Africa is going to be. Because in PESA, like, it's a good story, but it's, it's the same one, right? Everyone keeps pointing to. The next one is going to be these QR codes. Um, so in China right now, the main source of paying through WeChat is, is QR codes. And the reason that this is going to be the next leapfrogging narrative in Africa is because these credit card NFC terminals are not the unit economics in the same way the unit economics of brick and mortar banks didn't scale in Africa. It's not, that's not scaling, but these QR codes are going to allow African SMEs to actually accept digital payments because they're completely inexpensive. You know, you just stick it right there and anyone with an app can just scan it, transfer from one mobile money account or one bank account to that, to the next and so, and so I'm just putting myself on the record right now of the prediction. That's the next leapfrogging story that's going to play out over this next year. But absolutely, uh, but back absolutely to, back to Rwanda. Yes. Uh, why has Rwanda been so successful where other countries just haven't? Because I mean, one of the advantages that's kind of obvious that Rwanda has over something like Nigeria is like it's much easier to kind of manage and, and align that small group of people versus 200 million people, you know, in Nigeria where it's much more fragmented and a lot of other challenges, but I guess, yeah, I would love, just love to hear because you were on the ground in Rwanda since the early days. Yes. And, and I love what you said about QR code, actually. I totally agree with you. It's like the biometrics of payment and right. done in an easy to scan way. Totally agree. Rwanda is one of my, uh, one of my favorite countries. I've worked on it since 2006. Wow. At that time, it was recovering from a terrible genocide, as you know. And, um, Many, many colleagues of, of my group were also part of this. So it's, it's all a labor of love, if you will. From the early days, the Rwandan president believed in technology. And when nobody ever talked about five-year strategic national information communication technology plan in 2000 and until 2020, Rwanda has been every five years issuing a national investment strategy for what was called then ICT sector. Now we call it digital. So information communication technology. 
And the World Bank was requested in 2006 to help uh, finance uh, through a, a grant a project called eRwanda. And what eRwanda was supposed to do, it was not a huge project, and it was going on in parallel with another project also financed by the World Bank, which was a connectivity project. The connectivity project was bringing in fiber optic, connecting the landlocked countries to neighboring ones, Uganda, Kenya, uh, going through the, the Indian Ocean and uh, getting up to uh, Dubai and India. The Irwanda project was really about connecting 30 districts to the internet, uh, connecting government agencies, putting websites, training people. And most importantly, that's, that's the part that was quite innovative in it using uh, mobile buses going around the country to teach young and less young people how to use computers. And remember, at that time, not everybody had a laptop. It was quite a luxury. Laptops were a lot more expensive. We're talking about the period from 2009 to 2014. So after the foundation of infrastructure were built, that Irwanda project financed four buses that were gutted out and uh, 20 desktops and chairs, and it was like a nice office inside the bus, mm. powered by a, a satellite antenna and a big TV. And it went around roaming village after village, spending two weeks in every village, training young people. We requested at least 30% being young ladies, because otherwise we were afraid they would be left behind, and that worked very well. And what the young kids would do in the day, they would spend the whole day in the bus. They would learn everything from Word, Excel, access to internet, how to write email, but also they learned better English skills on how to write business letters. They learned some soft skills around starting their own business. And they learned more, let's say, the westernized way to interact, um, communicate, etc. We trained around 3,000 young kids that way. And over the weekend, because, you know, we have the bus driver and two trainers on board, the TV was used to showcase movies. And so the whole village would uh, reunite around the bus, we'd pull down the big screen and they would project a movie. Mm. And I watched myself Casablanca <laughs> <laughs> in one of these. It, it was really lovely and it brought community together. Yeah. The project also financed what we called telecenters at that time, 30 telecenters, one in each one of the 30 provinces I described. It also digitized a lot of the Kenyan-Rwandan language uh, from libraries, from media, video footage, and was available in these 30 telecenters. So the project took five to six years to complete. After that, the government of Rwanda went on, progressing even further and, and stronger, bringing in universities like Carnegie Mellon, strong universities in computer science and creating programs of masters and PhDs in computer sciences. And are they still doing those buses or any similar concept? Because one thing I would love to see that I think needs to happen more is teaching them the full stack of, of these freelancing platforms. Because platforms like Upwork and Fiverr, like there are so many skills like graphic design, video production, coding, simple skills that these young people can really go deep on and make significant money from from these freelancing platforms and like we we discussed it a few episodes ago we had this guy jude moore from the center for global development on and he was just talking about in in liberia when he was 
he was working on a small business there and he used a freelance platform and he was using someone in, in the Philippines to do work. And that was a light bulb moment for him where he realized, well, here I am, an American sitting in Liberia using this platform of someone in the Philippines. And that kind of connected the dots for him. But like the, the amount of money that they can make on Upwork, very cheap for us in the US, but very significant for, for someone like that. I would love to see some buses going around training them on how to use these these freelancing platforms. I love the idea, and I don't see why not. I'm, I'm going there next week, and I think that's a good topic to bring back. I know after the project ended, the buses were used by the press, going around using the buses to do like uh, press conferences because it had the connectivity. Right. And, you know, you can always uh, update and upgrade the technology and do anything you want. Online platform, I couldn't agree more with you. We've worked with a few of the providers. Samasource is one of them. Mm. And we know, we know, and we've been counting them uh, in countries like Uganda, in countries like Ghana, Rwanda, Kenya, because the spoken language, English, is, is you know, perfect to do some of that long-distance work, if you will. Right. There's been a lot of work commissioned to other parts of the world, very much like the second generation after, let's say, the call centers, where we had a lot of the companies relocate their call centers in English-speaking countries like Philippines or, or India or even Ghana. Uh, now we are seeing the work being, exactly as you described it, kind of fragmented, uh, outsourced, crowdsourced, and then reassembled by, by these online platforms. And then the workers get paid uh, through digital payments or, or QR code. So that's great. On the skills you mentioned, Andrew, I couldn't agree more with you. Like, we always talk about PhDs in computer science and computer engineering, but we see so many unfilled jobs at the lower uh, tier of that pyramid. Uh, you mentioned graphic design, video design, audiovisual, yeah. electrical work. There is so much work for electricians. You'd agree with me, uh, living here in the U.S., when something goes wrong in your house, finding an electrician and, and, and getting them to fix things is quite a challenge. It's even more a challenge in many of my client countries. And the pay is amazing. So we've been looking at models uh, used in Europe, like in Germany, in, in Sweden, in Denmark, the apprenticeship model, where after high school, or even if you didn't complete your high school, but you demonstrate talent and the aptitude to take a six-month, one-year training in a dedicated vocational school. You learn to be a network technician, a wire technician, a router technician. Same way as in the past, you learn how to become a painter or a plumber. And by, by the way, these are all still in very high demand, right. but the same process. And we're seeing more and more of these vocational learning school being set up in many of our developing countries Many, for instance, um, in, in Rwanda, going back in Rwanda, if you look at what Japan has done, Japan and Korea have been, in my view, amazing donors. They have created a lot of vocational schools, which have their own campuses, not necessarily in Kigali, but really in remote area to promote uh, these areas and keep the youth there. Yeah. And it's been a very successful model, in my view. I don't understand why we hear, I mean, we hear in the U.S., like that, that term apprenticeship, like that, that used to be kind of like the core of our society and how you would, you know, learn your vocation and that it kind of has gone away. I feel like it needs to come back, Absolutely. especially the vocation schools. I don't understand why everyone's, you know, taking on the, the six figures in debt to get some degree that, I mean, it's just not, the ROI is just not going to be there. Absolutely. So, so we, we need you all implementing that here, here. back home as well. We, we, <laughs> have, to, we have to make it uh, more publicized again. You know, yeah. here there's not a lot of clarity where the job gaps are. 
Mm. And I think, I think I totally agree with you, making it more sexy, uh, giving it a bit more branding as opposed to making it look like low wage, kind of uh, not, not interesting job. I think this is where we need a little bit uh, more marketing. We need some, I don't know, maybe a Disney movie about an apprentice <laughs> yeah, no. well, who's Don, done Donald great. Trump kind of brought it back with his show, The Apprentice. That, that was actually one, maybe one of the first times that I saw it in pop That's culture. Right. You know? That's right. Maybe, maybe, maybe reuse some of you know, this, this good branding around that. Because, because I <laughs> yeah. tell you, these jobs will not go away mm -mm. and are needed. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and they're high paying too. Like, I, I don't have any friends that are plumbers, but I know one of my friends from high school, his dad was a plumber. And he was, he was definitely making, I mean, they had a really nice house. He was definitely making over, like, six, in the six-figure range for sure. My, my husband jokes with me that every time we hire the plumber, the plumber makes more on an hourly basis than him. So, <laughs> so here yeah, you go. That, yeah. that's, that's hilarious. Well, yeah. um, I, I want to hear more about some of your, your recent trips. Uh, I think you mentioned you were in Myanmar and Lamadon. Um, I don't know if we have a guy in, in Peace Tech Lab. Do you, do you know the name Nizar Zaka? I heard the name. Yeah, so he's he's actually in in Peace Tech Lab. So he was one of the hostages in Iran that uh, that we got back. Oh my god! Back in August of last year. I'm glad he's um, back. Yes, yeah. and so we ha we had him on the show a few weeks ago, and he was telling me about what was happening uh, in the in Lebanon, the kind of the movement there that he was saying was actually being led by women. Yes, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. The thing is about all the countries that I visit, and and that would resonate with you, Andrew. It's a lot of youth with amazing ambitions, great vision, and nowhere to go. That's mm -hmm. the problem. And nowhere to go, especially in countries where you have conflict. So these young people are stuck in a country. They've been educated. There are no jobs. They can go anywhere else because they're not getting visas. So what to do? So we've been really pondering around this. And in many countries that are fragile and conflict, we're trying to support not just the government, but also private ventures like incubators, accelerators, through some cash and through some technical assistance to be able to host and uh, really incubate for a period varying from three months to a year, promising startups. Most of the time, single entrepreneurs, sometimes they have a partner. And the type of support goes anywhere from, like I said, short training, boot camps, uh, bringing in experts like you, but also teaching them soft, uh, soft skills, which they often lack. Luckily today, you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, online, there is a lot of ways that these young people can learn online and they acquire so many skills, but then the frustrating part is what do they do with them? So mm -hmm. I think partnering cross border is really needed. And the other part we're trying to, um, push a bit of momentum is in many of these countries for the local market, the biggest employer is the government. Governments typically like to go with big companies. They don't have much trust in little startups. Many procurement documents require five-year experience and three clients for multi-million projects. How can a bright startup go anywhere with that? So we're trying to lower the barriers for entry to work for government. And governments now in almost every country I worked on, Myanmar is a good example. We were there because Myanmar is putting together a huge reform in procurement and they want to go with electronic procurement, which changes enormously from the paper-based way that, you know, you publish uh, all your tenders and then your suppliers come with tons of paper with their offer and their specification. It's all going to go online now. 
But then you need a lot of uh, help for the government who doesn't have enough skilled staff to digitize and to modernize the way the process is. And then later on, you know, to take care of the backup, to take care of whatever goes in the cloud. Uh, you need engineers, you need software developers, you need translators, because a lot of it is not just in English, but it's in Burmese, the local language, and and English. Yeah. So lots of new jobs potentially coming from the government and the government cannot fill these with civil servants. So how can they use the entrepreneurs of the local scene and how can we World Bank with other donors, with other private sector partners, Google, Facebooks are some of our strong partners, help bring up the skill level of these micro enterprises to be medium or or, or small medium size so that they can work with governments. Yeah. No, I, I think that setting aside funds, it doesn't have to be a lot, but setting aside funds for government procurement that's solely focused on uh, you know, startups can execute this for us. Because I think that the all, especially here in the U.S., oh my God, the amount of waste, the amount of waste that the government working with these big contracts, I won't mention any names, but like, I mean, the big four consulting firms, like the amount of waste and, you know, my, my cousin is working for one of them and he was on a project where the, there was more staff than required to actually carry it out. And so some staff were just getting paid and we're just sitting at home because that's like raising a round, like getting a significant, uh, even a small government contract for a startup, that's like a series A round, right? Absolutely. You, you don't even have to give up any equity for it. You just have to carry it out Absolutely. and they'll be much more efficient. Um, and, and maybe you have, to, you have to tie that through those incubators and you obviously have to have some sort of vetting and kind of maturity establishment process. But, totally. but totally. awesome. This, this has been fantastic. Um, is there anything that we didn't cover that... I, I, everything, everything we covered is, is fascinating. The last thing I wanted to say is, um, what we're doing, uh, of late is also through our partners in education. UNESCO is one of them, but also through support to, um, ministries of education, especially higher education and universities. We've been trying to bridge the big gap that exists between academia and the world of finance. So sponsoring a few uh, conferences and workshops, bringing in VCs, angel investors, especially in some countries where they have not visited and meeting with academia, meeting with some of the entrepreneurs and trying to see where the opportunities are. And we get very good ideas from the VCs and the angel investors. In fact, IFC, which is the International Finance Corporation, part of the World Bank Group has been really trying to focus on that, on the frontier VC and angel uh, funding market. Mm. Awesome. Well, Samia Melham, Lead Digital Development Policy Specialist at the World Bank. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Andrew. It was fun.